Philadelphia. And uh, Philadelphia, um, some of you will be aware, is a very famous city, home of the Philadelphia Eagles, the NFL team, and uh, a baseball team called... Isn't it the 76ers? Is that right? Oh, basketball. Sorry, basketball team called the 76ers. Wow. Showing my knowledge here. Uh, so I've been really enjoying... Uh, this week I listened to all of the um, sermons that Dan's done on... Uh, these passages, and, and gee, I hope you are thankful to God for what you've got. They were rich, they were biblical, they were faithful, they were challenging, they were encouraging. I was blessed. So really, I, I'm sorry, I'm probably embarrassing you. Um, is that what you wanted me to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, no, you didn't ask me to say that. I want, I, I want you to really uh, thank God and pray for your pastors as he does that. They were really wonderful. And I really enjoyed learning about uh, the context of each of these churches um, and so, uh, yep, there you go. There's Philadelphia. Liberty Bell, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, that was his... No, I'm just joking. That's the modern-day American Philadelphia, which was, I take it, named after this one. And why wouldn't you name a city after this one, as we'll see? Uh, but uh, the ancient... Well, we're not quite sure exactly which ancient city was, but we think we know it's in um, modern-day Turkey, because there are a few called Philadelphia. It means um, love of brothers, Philadelphia. And so, um, yeah, lots of cities had that name. And... Uh, Modern-day Turkey, we think, uh, the one that this was written uh, to, that city, on a highway. So quite, um, you know, good opportunity for evangelism, highway in and out. And, um, you know, modern-day Turkey was in the news earlier this year with, with a big earthquake. In fact, they have lots of earthquakes and have done through history. And um, just some decades before this was written, there was one particularly significant earthquake. And so you can imagine the big public, um, you know, temples and, the, um, and big um, monuments shaking, crumbling, and the emperor would um, gave some money or financial aid to help rebuild. And so they, for a time, renamed their city um, Neo-Caesarea um, after Caesar, who helped them. So there's some context. We're going to get into God's word now, and so I'll pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we, we know this is your word, and you say your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we pray, please, that you would be alive and active now in our hearts. Grant us faith, repentance. Uh, change the way we see life, and uh, may we please you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you know what a secret shopper is? Uh, shops or restaurants will often, well, I don't know about often, but will they hire one to um, secretly come in and then uh, give them feedback? I wonder if you know that there's a church version of that, at least in America. Uh, you can pay for a secret visitor. So one of their websites promises this, a report back scoring you on factors including your services, buildings, Music and parking, all the really important things. Now, I think this comes from a good place, doesn't it? Churches want to see people come so they can hear about Jesus and be saved. And sometimes you can just end up so used to what you're doing that you, you don't see it anymore. You, you've got blind spots. Now, I don't know if this church has ever hired mystery shoppers. I mean, in a sense, I, I feel a little bit one today. And I'm noticing possibly things that you don't notice. And if you came to mind, it'd be the same way. Um, I don't think our church has ever hired one, by the way. But I wonder if you've had this thought, what if Jesus decided to show up as a mystery shopper at one of his churches? What if he decided to come here this morning? What would he be thinking? Nothing matters more than that for a church, right? The whole point of Christianity is Christ, it's in the name, Christianity. He's the Lord, this is his church, and so the goal is not to get a pat on the back from our culture or the media or politicians or celebrities. I mean, everyone's got an opinion on what churches should be doing. But we're not about pleasing them. The goal is to please Jesus. That's success for a church, isn't it? 
If what is happening here or at any church doesn't please Jesus, it would be better just to stop and go home. And so think for a moment, what would Jesus think of this church? Perhaps you've been thinking about that all um, yeah, over the last six weeks as, as these letters have, um, have been teaching you that thing. In fact, that's quite similar to the introduction you had of the very first one, isn't it? But there you go. Uh, the gift of this part of the Bible is that um, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are seven letters from Jesus to seven of his churches where he tells them what he thinks of them. But let me offer that I think this week's letter, number six, to the church in Philadelphia is particularly helpful because there's something different about this church that breaks the pattern and really shows what success looks like for a church. Have you noticed the pattern as we've gone through? I think it'll come up on the screen. Let me summarise it. And if you're, if you're new this morning, this will catch up to speed with what's been going on. Um, the pattern in each letter as you go through... Um, as we go through it, I want you to see what's missing in this letter. See if you can spot it. Now, each letter, first of all, describes the author. Uh, for example, chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, some Bible trivia. Who's the guy that died and came to life again? It's Jesus, right? There you go. Uh, you guys know your stuff. Each letter describes Jesus in a different way at the beginning, but it's Jesus every time. And so again, chapter 2, verse 18, the words of the Son of God. Like I say, if you want to know what success looks like for a church, what a great place to look, because these are the words of Jesus to his churches. And each of those descriptions is taken from the vision that John has of Jesus in chapter 1 which is chapter 1, verses 12 to the end. That vision is packed with a style of writing called apocalyptic. It's a style of writing filled with symbolic language. John and, and Jesus, in fact, giving a sense of the sheer awe-inspiring majesty of who he is. And so have a look, for example, chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance, full strength. Now, does Jesus really have a sword for a tongue? Obviously not. No, it's speaking of the power of his word. His word that creates worlds, conquers enemies, and saves sinners. And so right out of the gate, this letter of Revelation says, don't underestimate the one who they are from. He's not just a dead carpenter. No, he's the one who, chapter 1, verse 17, is the first and the last, the living one, who is alive right now and will be forevermore. The Lord of the universe. Now, that apocalyptic language makes it hard. Uh, and some people think, just as an aside, some people, if you're new with us, imagine that the whole Bible is just filled with that kind of language. It's just a puzzle, symbols to decode. Actually, it's, it's mostly not like that at all, but Revelation is lots of that. And so we're going to have to do a bit of work this morning. But it's not just a guessing game. If you know your Old Testament, for example, lots of the apocalyptic language just picks up on those themes. Um, but if you pay attention as well, very often Revelation will tell you. Um, let me give you an example. Chapter 1, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And as I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Seven golden lampstands. What's that about? Well, then it tells you, chapter 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Won't get into what that means. But the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so you see it's symbolic picture language. And so this picture of Jesus among seven gold lampstands, what's it saying? It's saying Jesus is among his churches. Jesus has not flown off in a private jet. No, he's with us by his spirit. And so I just 
to clarify my introduction at the start, I said, imagine if Jesus came to church this week. That's actually a bit misleading, isn't it? He did come to church this week. He's here with us every week. Jesus walks among his churches. Not the, not the building. The word church in the Bible refers to the people. He says in the book of Matthew, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. So imagine you, you, you're out here before church or after church, you're talking to someone, and you're thinking, if you have this thought, oh, I think this person's familiar. I've seen them somewhere. You know? Suddenly you realize, oh, I, think it's, I think it's Jesus. Suddenly you start replaying the conversation in your head. What have I said? I hope it was okay. Well, he is. He is out there. And in here, in before and after church every week, in here as we, as we sing to him, as we pray, as we talk about him. And so to keep encouraging you in this, let that change. How would that change the way that you approach church every week? If you remember that you're coming to meet not just with the Lord's people, but with the Lord himself. Yes, he's with you always, but especially when you gather. In fact, that's what a church is. It's the gathering of the Lord's people around the Lord who's present among us by his word and by his spirit. And so he sees us. And so that's the next thing in the passage, uh, in the pattern. In every letter, he says the phrase, I know. He knows, we've seen over the last bunch of weeks, their circumstances, their actions, and their true spiritual condition. And so he always encourages them for what they're doing well and calls them out where they're not. Now, I remember when a particular truth first dropped for me. I was at a university Christian group annual conference and it dawned on me in a new way that Jesus is alive right now watching. Not just an idea, not just a historical figure from the past, but alive right now watching and listening and he has thoughts. I wonder, as you've been going through Revelation, have you found that idea encouraging or scary? The encouragement is this. Whatever you do for him, he sees it. He's pleased with it and he smiles. It's not wasted. Even your struggle against sin, your efforts to serve others, even when no one else seems to notice it, Jesus says, I see it. I see it. And so as you've listened to the last five sermons um, from Dan... Uh, what great challenges and encouragements and, and rebukes and, and uh, all those things you've seen. As you have either sought to repent and change or not, he has, he's seen it. You say, oh, I, I, but it's so full of weakness and imperfection. Well, yeah, he knows all that as well. But you're, you're his. If, if you're his, he's forgiven that. And now he's just pleased. Whenever you do something for him, he's pleased. What an encouragement to keep living for him, but scary as well. Because he sees the times you don't try. You can fool others, but you can't fool him, as you saw last week, chapter 3, verse 1. And so there's the, there's the context, there's a summary of where we're up to in the letter. Um, but, uh, but you see why we need to hear these words, don't you? Because they're actually written to all the churches, not just to each of these particular churches. I wonder if you've noticed this, that each letter actually finishes with, have a look at chapter 3, verse 13. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. churches. Not singular, but plural. Every single letter, though it's written to one church, is in fact written to the churches, plural, to all of us. In fact, let me offer, have you ever wondered why there's seven letters? In apocalyptic writing, the number seven has significance. What is it? Does anyone know? 
completeness. That's right, fullness. Why seven churches to symbolically represent all the churches? So I take it the issues that he's writing about here were genuine, real, historical situations. But as Jesus comments on them, the seven together form a message about the church as a whole, the sort of situations we'll face and what we'll need to hear in each of those. And I wonder if you've wondered how that then connects with the rest of the book of Revelation, because the rest of the book of Revelation, to really summarise it, repeats over and over again, here's what's coming, here's what's coming. And it just it, cycles of seven, cycles of seven, cycles of seven, and then, and then the conclusion. How do you apply all of what's about to come in the whole book of Revelation? The letters tell you. They're like the lens that focuses it on your situation. And so what, does, uh, what do we need to hear? Uh, in fact, what, what can we pick up from the church in Philadelphia? Well, that's where noticing this pattern is helpful because there's something missing here. What's missing? You've, got, you've had plenty of time to spot it. What's missing? No rebukes. That's right. There's no warnings. There's nothing that Jesus calls them to repent from. It is just all encouragement. If there's any church to be like, it's this one. Or Smyrna. That's the other one that uh, you saw, um, the second letter that gets no rebuke. But in fact, this one is actually even more encouraging, I would offer, than the one to Smyrna. And so if you want to know what it looks like to really succeed, this, the Philadelphians, are the ones to copy. So what is it that they're doing that Jesus is so pleased with? What's Jesus looking for in a church? It's really simple, but it's deeply profound. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Boil it all down, there it is. One very simple thing. What's Jesus looking to see? Do they keep my word? Not are they liked by the people around them? Not even are they, are they artistically brilliant? Are they, are they big? Are they small? No, no, no. Do they keep my word? It's all about Jesus' word. What a great new name, Coast Bible Church. May it always be the case. The word, Jesus says, is to be the centre. Now, the word keep there is the Greek word tereo. It's got a range of meanings. So it can mean to guard, like, a, like you might guard a prisoner. It means to preserve, to keep something the same. It means to protect, and it means to obey. Protect, preserve, put into practice. What does it mean to keep Jesus' word? Well, it doesn't just mean teach his word. Now, that does matter, doesn't it? We must not change Jesus' word. No matter how much pressure we find from society or forces inside the church or outside the church or denomination or anywhere else, pray that and, and work to see that. The ministry here, and, and we pray for all the churches, the ministry always preaches without, never, without ever changing Jesus' word. But it's not just do they teach it, because remember the Ephesian church. You might need to flick back and have a look, but chapter 2, verses uh, 2 and 3, they were bulldogs for the truth. They were heresy hunters. They protected and preserved the truth of the word. What was their problem? Yeah, they lacked love. They failed to obey it, particularly in the area of love. Chapter 2, verse 4, the greatest commandment of all. They protected, preserved, but did they put it into practice? 
Jesus is looking to see, not just do we teach his word, but do we keep it? That is, do we trust it? Do we obey it? Do we share it? Because that's the great commandment, isn't it? the great commission, I should say. And so let me ask, is it you? Is that this church? It strikes me that it is the value of this church, but pray that it would be more and more and always. Because uh, actually, it's none of us perfectly. We have that, we're, we're all sinners, prone to wander, we sang. What a, what a true line. And yet he forgives. Chapter 1, verse 5, one of my favourite verses, well worth underlining. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He takes away our sins when we stray. But, but do you want to succeed in life? And not waste it. Keep his word. Does this church want to please Jesus? And so succeed. Keep his word. That's what matters. Hold fast to his word. And let me offer that all the other problems with all the other churches boil down to this as well. A failure to keep his word. And so Ephesians chapter 1. Oh sorry, Ephesians letter 1. We've seen chapter 2 verse 4. They didn't keep his word. You've abandoned the love you had. Smyrna actually is doing quite well. But Pergamon, letter 3, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, they are, they're not denying Jesus' name, but they're not obeying his word when it comes to sin. Sexual immorality, verse 14, idolatry. You heard about the way they follow the teaching of Balaam instead. And they're compromising. They're eating the food sacrificed to idols. They're practicing sexual immorality. They're not keeping Jesus' word when it comes to sin. Letter 4, Thyatira, verse 19. They've got love. They've got faith. They've got endurance. But they're not protecting Jesus' word when it comes to false teaching. Verse 20. You tolerate that woman who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching the wrong things, as you saw. Letter 5, Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. Outwardly, they're keeping Jesus' words. They've got a reputation for it. But actually, it's not spiritually alive in their heart. They haven't trusted it. Letter 7, Laodicea. You'll see this next week. Chapter 3, verse 15. They keep Jesus' word when it's convenient. Sometimes. When it suits them. They're lukewarm. When they feel like it. But not when they don't. Which really means who's in charge is not Jesus' word. It's, it's them. All these other letters are ways, examples of ways to fall off the horse when it comes to the thing that matters most, keeping Jesus' words. But why is Philadelphia succeeding? Why, when so many other churches here are having such mixed success, why are they doing so well? Why are they not compromising? Well, is it maybe that they had it easier? Well, the problem is, no, when you look closely, they're being persecuted. Now, I want you to spot this. I want you to be detectives. And so have a look at the letter to the Philadelphians, chapter 3, 7 to 13, what we read out. With the person next to you, have a chat and say, what do you notice? What can you work out about the situation of this church? What are the clues that they're being persecuted? Let me give you a moment to do that.
Uh, that might be enough time for now. Sorry to interrupt you. The art of writing a sermon is working out where you'll put in the, the spot to go get water. <laughs> what have you come up with? What, what are the, the things you've seen? Any, anyone got any answers or clues? Yes. What verse is that? Verse 10. Verse 10 the, the sense that they're having to endure su- suggests that they're going through something hard and they're doing it patiently. Yes. What else? Yes, the synagogue of Satan verse. Really helpful. We'll come back to that one. What else do we see? Yes, no one can seize your crown. How does that point to a, a sense of suffering? Oh, there might be someone trying to take their crown. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, they've got little strength, little power. Uh, are they worn out from the, the suffering? Are they tired? Is it saying that they've got very little power in worldly terms? They've been pushed out of their jobs, their position of authority. You know, you can't be um, the CEO of um, Essendon Football Club if you have certain views. Um, they've got little power, low status. Uh, and yes, verse 11, I think, as well, they're told, hold fast. But the synagogue of, of Satan reference in verse 9 is quite significant because where else have we heard that phrase? There's just one other place. It was the other letter to the struggling church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9. And that was the one which uh, Jesus says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, the slander. And so you've got these two churches both mentioned with this synagogue of Satan. What is it about... um, And and the connection with Smyrna suggests that this church might be um, facing persecution of a comparable level level to that one and higher than the other churches. But it seems that there was a community of Jewish people that was opposing these Christians, saying things that weren't true. It calls them liars. Probably saying Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And I I wrote these words before the recent events in um, Palestine and Israel. So... Just to point out, this is not a comment on all Jewish people. And I I wrote these words here because through Christian history, tragically, people have misread the Bible or um, deliberately misused the Bible to justify their own prejudice. Um, There is no justification inside the Bible or outside the Bible for anti-Semitism. Christians are never to be anti-Semitic. Jesus was a Jew. Many of the first Christians were Jews as well. John, who's writing this letter, was Jewish. Uh, they recognized that Jesus was the Messiah who they'd been waiting for. And as Christians who aren't from Jewish heritage, which is me, we've been joined into their promises. Opposition to Christianity can and does, and in fact did, come from many different sources. Rome was a, was a source for Jesus and for um, some of these uh, places. But in this city, it just seems as a, as a simple matter of history, There is a a salvation, historical, theological thing behind this as well. But as a simple matter of history, it was the Jews or or a community of Jews that didn't believe in Jesus and they were ones who were opposing probably other Jews who had come to believe in Jesus. They were saying things like, you're wrong about him, he's not the Messiah. In fact, by saying that, you've abandoned the faith. How can you say that a man was God? That's blasphemy. There's only one God. He's in heaven. You're not true Jews. But Jesus says, no, 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 you're not wrong. Notice the start of the letter, verse 7. The words of the Holy One. Jesus is the Holy One. Now, who's the Holy One? That's a title for God. He is God. 
He's the true one. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. He's the genuine article. And thirdly there, he has the key of David. Now you can trace that one through the Old Testament. It comes up in Isaiah. But, but particularly, uh, it picks up as apocalyptic, Im- apocalyptic imagery that particularly picks up um, the king of the old, in the Old Testament, the great King David, the one that God promises in 2 Samuel 7 would have a descendant who would have an everlasting kingdom. Jesus is the one who has the key of that kingdom. He is a descendant of David, the descendant of David, the eternal one, the eternal king who has authority there to let people into God's kingdom or keep them out. Verse 7 there, if you want to live forever in heaven, he's got the key. If he opens the door to you, no one can shut it, verse 7 says. And if he closes the door to you, no one you know, nothing you do, will make any difference at all. You'll be stuck outside forever. This is the one that the Jewish people were waiting for. And so it's actually the Christian Jews and those who joined them um, become Christians from non-Jewish backgrounds. They are actually the truest expression of being Jews now. Their opponents, well, they're saying the sort of things that Satan would say. And there's a situation, therefore, of the the church in Philadelphia. They're being persecuted. They're suffering for being Christians. And so they're not doing better simply because they've got it easier. In fact, they they probably had it harder than many of the other churches. And yet they are holding fast to Jesus' word. And so that's what success looks like, holding fast to his word, keeping it no matter the cost. A man named Hugh Lattimore once taught the true gospel of Jesus. I think we have a little... That's a a photograph of Hugh Lattimore. Uh, Hey, oh, Hugh Latimer, sorry. He once taught the, the true gospel of Jesus at a time in England when doing that got you in trouble. He was summoned uh, with the authority of the Queen herself. Before going, he read through the whole New Testament carefully with a friend to check, is what we've been saying really what it says? Came to the conclusion, it is, and therefore I can't stop teaching it. And so he was sent to prison. While in prison, he read the entire New Testament again seven times. Not an apocalyptic number, in fact, seven times. And he prayed, what did he pray? God, help me hold on to what is true even to death and make the true gospel take root in this land. He was put on trial and examined again and again and he knew where it was headed to his death and so his approach was not to try and say very much, just to, just to simply state, this is what I believe because this is what it says. And on the 16th of October, which is in two days' time, the anniversary, um, 1555, out they brought Latimer and his Christian friend Ridley and they brought them to the place where they were to be burned at the stake. And as they got there, Latimer and Ridley bent down and kissed it. This was to be their gate to heaven. They prayed, they spoke to each other. They said to all those present, I commit our cause to Almighty God who will impartially judge all. And they were chained to the stake. Wood was piled around their feet. And as the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer turned to his friend Ridley and said these words that have become famous. Be of good courage, brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. 
Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. Be strong. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And their prayers were answered. The candle of the light of the true gospel did spread in England and from England to the world, in fact, in part because of their witness. As the flames leapt higher, they cried out, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, is that a tragedy? John Piper might say. Is that a tragedy? It's a triumph. To use the word in chapter 3, verse 12, it's a victory. They conquered. NIV translates it victorious. That's what it means to succeed. That's what it means to win at life. What's victorious Christian living? Doesn't mean that everything goes easily for you. No, it's nothing more than simply to hold on to Jesus and his word, come what may. That is victorious Christian living. That's what it means to conquer. To the one. Now, it doesn't have to look like Latimer, does it? It's the 90-year-old who, despite all the threats from the pressures of life and the pleasures of life, nonetheless dies quietly in her bed, still holding fast to Jesus and his word. That's victory. That's success. Which brings us to an important lesson about the greatest threats to the churches. Because what I want to do is step back and just notice an even bigger pattern through these letters. It's actually been on your screen for weeks. I wonder if you've noticed it. Is it deliberate that these candles are the way they are? There you go. Very good. Let me spell it out. It's like a hamburger. The two slices of bun, they're mouldy bun. The first and the last churches are the two that Jesus says are actually in greatest danger. Jesus says to those two churches, and only those two churches, that unless they repent, they will be removed as churches. Notice, uh, you'll see next week, the harshest of all letters is written to the church that's in the most comfortable situation. Chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, but don't you realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? Imagine Jesus saying that to you. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. They're the comfy church. They seem rich outwardly, they seem secure, they seem self-sufficient, but they're actually in the greatest spiritual danger. The, the two outer churches, they're in danger. But then the next two in, the second and the second last, they're, they're actually like the, the aioli and the margarine. They're the bit that make the, the whole thing. Otherwise, it's just a dry crap. They're, they're doing really well. Those letters are all encouragement. The middle three, though, they're mixed. Some good things, some bad things, some groups good, some groups bad within the churches. Now, just stepping back, what does that picture tell you about the state of the churches as a whole? If these seven churches represent all churches, remember seven, the number of completeness, what picture do you get? As a whole? It's not great, is it? Yeah, the chances are a church is just going to be mixed, but some are quite poor and in grave danger. And as a whole, the condition of Jesus' church, even, recall, in the, in the first century, is not great. That is life in our world of sin. 
even for churches. There's a romantic view out there of the early church because people get rightly frustrated because we all live in mostly mixed churches and we get frustrated and we go, maybe if we could just get back to the good old days when Christianity was pure, church would be good again. If we could just go back to the first century, just a handful of decades after Jesus, what would we find? It's a mess. It's always been messy because we've always been sinners. Now, that's not to say don't try. It's not to say it doesn't matter. No, the constant message is it really matters. Repent. But there's no model of church that will guarantee success. Going back to some early church model, that won't guarantee it. Being free from persecution, that won't guarantee success. In fact, the most comfortable churches, they're the most spiritual danger. Just an aside, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy in itself, is it? It's good to be free. It's good to be healthy. It's good to be in peace. It's good to have enough money to buy medication. Just don't think it's safe spiritually. might be physically safe, but it's actually spiritually dangerous. Think about where we live. Are we the richest country in the world? We're up there, safest. You know, the biggest danger to us as a church, or this, as this church, is not persecution, but the illusion of safety. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are, who you serve, and remember the times you live in. The last days, don't be lulled to sleep by a gently rocking baby or the comfortable wife. But let me, th- let me share something I think we need to, to think long and hard about because I actually think that things are going to heat up for us as Christians in Australia. The way things are going, it seems it might not be long before there are Christians in our country who go to prison simply for holding fast to Jesus' word. Now, I don't know if I sound like I'm being alarmist. Uh, I'd love to be wrong, I think, but there are already laws in Victoria that could do it. They're labelled a certain way to make people think that they're they're outlawing uh, quite extreme practices that I'm not aware of any Christians or churches that have have ever practised or certainly not want to practise, but actually also then include other things that are much more benign. In fact, even in the finer details, make it against the law to, um, to do and say things that are Christian, um, even to, to pray for someone who's asked for that prayer, even to uh, help a person um, be celibate who isn't married and Jesus calls them to. Now, New South Wales is talking about bringing laws that are even more extreme. In Victoria, there's a significant harm test. So no one's actually been um, pers- uh, brought up under these laws because you have to prove significant harm. But the New South Wales laws, it seems likely they won't put in that significant harm test. And one of the things, just to say, that these laws aren't actually designed to really regulate behaviour, but to bring fear. The whole, they will achieve their purpose if people change the way they act because of the laws, whether or not they ever get prosecuted. But what should we do with that as Christians? Should we try to stop it? Well, if we can, Yes. It says in 1 Timothy 2 that we should pray for those in government so that we can live peaceful and godly lives. In a democracy, it's, it's right and good to, to vote, to speak up. But don't imagine that if it does pass, and then if people go to jail, if, if Dan goes to jail, if one of you go to jail, don't imagine that will be the biggest threat to Christianity in Australia. Materialism, greed and comfort, that is already here and that's the bigger threat. In fact, Christianity might even spread faster. That's what's happened at various times in history under persecution. It continues even today in some places. Sometimes persecution wakes a church up 
That's why I think it's worth observing that the most persecuted churches are the only ones that Jesus doesn't rebuke. The pain makes you ask, why am I doing this? It sends you deeper into the truth. It makes you pray more, rely more on him. And then people see and they go, how can you be so joyful with all of that going on? What have you got that I haven't got? No one was ever converted by walking to your house and going, that's a big TV. Tell me about Jesus. But even persecution doesn't guarantee success because as you've seen in previous weeks, there's persecution in some of the mixed churches as well. Persecution brings pressure to compromise. And that's why Jesus tells the, has to tell the Philadelphian church, chapter 3, verse 11, hold fast. You see, let me, let me offer this. There's no one model that will guarantee success, but there is a sure and steadfast path to it. Keeping Jesus' word. And here's the good news. The good news is this. You can do it. Not because you've got strength in yourself. In fact, it's better if you're like the Philadelphians and you realise you've got no strength. Even when you've got little power, you can do it. Why? Because it doesn't depend on you. Though you've got little strength, he's got all power. Jesus actually promises in this passage that as you keep his word, he will keep you keeping it. There's a word play there. So twice in the passage, it talks about them keeping Jesus' word. Verse 8 and verse 10. Notice that word, uh, keep and kept, verse 8 and verse 10. But the third time, at the end of verse 10, notice it uses the same word, but this time it's Jesus saying, He will keep them. As they guard and protect and put into practice and share Jesus' word, He will guard and protect and preserve them as in doing that. And so I'm going to finish by expanding on that. I'm going to leave you with the three promises that Jesus gives to the suffering Philadelphians to keep them going, that they might, we pray, keep us going. Ready for this? Three promises. Number one, vindication. Have a look at verse 9. There'll be a great reversal. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There's a reference there um, to the true Israel. Jacob I loved in the Old Testament. The opponents who lie about them will come and fall down at their feet. Now, is that a reference to um, success in evangelism? Is that a reference to... As they persevere in, in proclaiming the truth, some will go, you're right, and they'll be converted, possibly. But certainly, if it's not in this life through evangelism, it will be on the day Jesus returns. Everyone will see then that Jesus really is Lord, and they'll fall down at his feet, but not just his feet, verse 9, also at the feet of Jesus' people gathered around him. And so though the world might hate you in this life, though they lie about you, the lie will be temporary. The truth will stand forever. Don't, don't worry if you're not vindicated in this life. You don't need to be. Jesus will vindicate you forever. Number one, vindication. Number two, security. He promises them invincible access to his eternal kingdom. Look at verse 8. See, I've set before you an open door 
which no one is able to shut. Now again, is that, a, is that a reference to evangelism, an open door for the gospel? It might seem like people are against you, but they can't really touch the power of my word, says Jesus. No amount of opposition can actually stop Jesus saving people. Possibly. Probably. But more than that, as you read through the book of Revelation, you see that this open door is a reference to them being saved. The one who's got the keys to the kingdom has opened wide the door for them and they've got little strength, but he's got all power and he's standing there using his almighty power to hold the door of heaven open, waiting for them. Waiting for you, faithful Christian. Now, I'm not certain about this. Some of those in Smyrna, they were in prison. I wonder if some of these Philadelphians are in prison as well. If not them, then many others through Christian history. The prison doors, they seem shut so that no one can open them. But you know what? Those doors don't matter. The door that really matters, the door to the kingdom, it's in fact already open, Jesus says. It stands wide open for you and no one can shut it. Now, it sounds like it'll be actually quite a bumpy ride on the way there. Verse 10 talks about this hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. What's that? Is that a reference to the COVID-19 pandemic? Let's never talk about that again. Some different views. Some people think there's a a specific situation that that's referring to. Other people would take that as um, apocalyptic language to describe this whole period from Jesus' um, first coming to his return. I tend that way. Whatever it is, in that hour, Jesus promises that he will keep them, he will guard them, as we sang about actually. What does it mean, verse 10? I will keep you from the hour of trial. In the NIV, it's I will keep you... Oh, it's the same, yeah. What does that mean? Some have thought that it's, it's a reference to the rapture. So when things really heat up, you'll get sucked up like Star Trek. Out of harm's way. I don't mean to make light if that's your view, but that's how I picture it. There's a few problems with that view. One is it would imply kind of just a rapture in the middle of history because these are words to this particular church, so it must have already happened. The other problem with it is this phrase, keep you from, is used somewhere else by Jesus where he says the exact opposite of taking him out of the world. You can turn there if you like, or I'll read it to you. John chapter 17, verse 15. Jesus says, praying to his father, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from. Same Greek word, keep them from the evil one. So Jesus says, I pray not that you'll take them out of the world, but while they're in the world, that you will look after them. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them safe. And so this is not a promise that Jesus will take you out of the storm or the Philadelphians out of the storm, but rather that he will make sure you make it through the storm. And so um, I think if you swap in the word protect rather than keep in verse 10 of of Revelation 3, you see the sense of it. I will protect you from the hour of trial, not keep you from by by taking you out. As you patiently listen, there's the technicalities, but listen to the promise, really important. As you patiently hold on to Jesus' word with your little strength, his almighty power will be at work in you to protect you in that hour to help you hold on to his word. How's that for security? The door no one can shut and the power to keep holding on. Finally, reward. We've already seen the reward of entering the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus says actually, no, there's more than that. It's it's what you get on arrival and what you'll do when you're there. Firstly, on arrival, there'll be the reward of honour. The reward of honour. 
When I was in year six, um, it was really cool to wear surf brands. Billabong, Rip Curl, SMP. But my family, we never shopped at those shops. We shopped at Best and Less and Lowe's. So I had Lightning Bolt, which was not cool. And I had no cred at all. And I preached this um, last week, actually, and my mum was there. And she clarified with me afterwards. She said, I think you're exaggerating. In year six, I bought you a Billabong shirt for the formal. I think, I don't know, does that prove that I'm exaggerating? Or does that prove, it's the, it's the exact opposite. If you can remember the one. I was not cool. I had no cred in year six. But you know what? When I get to heaven, when you get to heaven, look at verse 12. You'll get to wear a new brand much better than even Billabong. I will write on them, verse 12. The name of my God. Three names, actually. The name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own name, says Jesus. My own new name. The glorious Lord of the universe will honour you with his own reputation. The weight of his glory will be on you. Isn't it crazy how people care about their status, their reputation, their LinkedIn profile, the badge on their car, their job title, your name? Your great-grandkids will probably struggle to remember your name. Some of people in your own family, your friends, if you're faithful as a Christian, they'll spit when they think of your name, that Christian. But for eternity, you will wear a glorious name, far more than yours, a glorious name, the name above all names. There's one part of the reward, a new name, honour when you get there. But even more than that, the reward, we'll finish with this, is God himself. To be in his presence. Verse 12, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Again, there's apocalyptic imagery. The temple was where you went to be with God. Remember Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. But you're not just allowed to come in. No, you're part of the furniture. You're permanent. You're a pillar. And as we together form that new temple, God with his people forever, you'll be in his presence. Three massive promises of indication, security, and reward. Is that worth it? Brothers and sisters, if, if keeping Jesus' word ever means that you go to prison, or that you lose your job, or miss out on a promotion, or, or it, it disrupts your family, we need to be willing to do it. Would you? If for some reason a policeman, a judge in court, someone from the Department of Education... A journalist with a camera on your face would ask you, do you believe, you fill in the blank, something from God's word, and you knew it would land you in jail, or would you calmly say, yes, it's what my Lord says, and so it's what I believe? Yeah, if you're like me, and you think, I don't know, that's okay. You don't have to be willing now. You just have to be willing then. And so pray that if that time comes, by his power, you will be. Let me pray for that now. 
Our loving Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Without it, we'd be in the dark. But by your word, you've called us into the light. And so we pray that we would shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, faithful to you and faithfully holding out that word so that many others might enter through the open door. And so please help us to keep trusting, keep teaching, keep obeying your word. Give us the power in the, in, the, in the moment of trial, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think Dan's going to come up and lead us in communion. And he did. Thanks, brother. I realised I needed to grab the microphone. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, just an exceptional um, exposition of the text, but, but applying it so richly to us as well. So thank you so much, brother. Um, and we're going to share in communion now together, which is part of keeping the word of Jesus, is it not? Um, he gives us really just the two sacraments, baptism and communion, really important ways to declare that we are his, uh, that those wonderful promises that Andrew is just pointing us to, uh, the reward of being made a pillar in his temple, a part of the furniture. Uh, we're declaring that together. We declare it first through baptism and, and then through sharing in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and and I, I, just, I love that you referred to...